platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. Hello and welcome to this special edition of BizTalk, coming to you from the picturesque alpine ski town of Davos. I'm your host, Guan Xing. The annual meeting of 2024 gathered around 3,000 leaders from across the world under the theme of building trust. It comes at a critical time as world economy slows, inflation remains elevated, and geopolitical tensions continue to divide the world. To shed light on how to navigate these complexities, we sat down with some of the most influential figures in the global business world. Our first guest is Bob Moritz, global chairman of PwC. He discussed the degree of optimism in the global CEO community with a particular focus on the sentiment in China. He also underscored the transformative potential of AI in reshaping business operations and provided valuable guidance for businesses seeking to thrive in an era of rapid technological advancement. Mr. Morris, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely to see you in doubles. Good to see you as well. Do you expect the doubles this year can um, promote some confidence in the world economic outlook, in, in particular regarding China? We know China has a big delegation here. How do you expect from the messages that China delivered to the world? Yeah, it's clear that one of the concerns from an economic perspective is degree of certainty. CEOs, governments, citizens around the world want more certainty mm -hmm. so they can make decisions and plan accordingly. And in the case of the corporates, they clearly are thinking about that certainty because we see a concern about the need for reinvention of themselves. So much change is coming around them. Mm -hmm. There's issues of less certainty will create a paralyzing effect and therefore they'll slow down investment and capital improvement projects and other aspects like that. So one of the things that I think is gonna be very important is for the Chinese delegates here in Davos continue to uh, bring a degree of stability mm -hmm. and resiliency to the Chinese economy locally, but also how he will continue and the administration will continue to open up for global economic opportunities within China and for China around the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You're very familiar with China and its economic roadmap. In your opinion, how can the country further recharge its growth momentum? What are the priorities? Yeah, there's two or three things that are very important, as was said by many in the administration in China. First is the stabilization of the property sector more broadly. That's very important when you look at the enormous impact it had over the last couple of years. The second is to make sure that the consumption of the company, uh, the country is still at a reasonable level. When you look at the rise of the middle class broadly across the country, and when you look at its expenditures, that gives corporates a degree of optimism that there's consumer opportunity for them. And third is the continued revitalization and upswing relevant to the central and western part of China that's going to be equally as important since so much of the last 20 and 30 years has been focused on the eastern part of China as an opportunity. So those three things will be very important. Clearly monetary policy and fiscal policy, the stabilization of that will be needed to fuel 
um, that opportunity in those three key areas. So the whole world's looking for that kind of focus going ahead. And again, that's something that can, I think, be communicated here in Davos. Mm. Well, um, multinational companies are now navigating an ever-challenging global environment. And since there is some um, emphasis more on security than efficiency, what is your take on that? Do you would you advise them to, to be to be a little bit bullish or cautious, rather? Yeah, the the CEO community around the world has two fundamental challenges right now. One in the short term. The short term, everyone is still worried about inflationary increases and macroeconomic policies. And we have to manage for that in a slowing economy. We clearly have a slowing economy, and therefore there's a need for a drive towards more market share growth rather than riding a growth curve. That means that there will be a pressure on their margins and their effectiveness and efficiency, which will be a key short-term priority. The other reason to focus on effectiveness and efficiency, though, is the longer-term priority. Close to 45% of CEOs around the world believe they're not going to be viable, economically viable in the next 10 years unless they change dramatically. So for them to change, they actually have to find time and capacity and financial capital to drive and fuel that change. And those are driven more so by technology changes, by changes in consumer behaviors, by regulatory regimes, um, implications relevant to climate. So some of the longer term strategic objectives are the things that get in the way. And the challenge for CEOs now is how to navigate both of those at the same time. Mm. You talk about technology and that is also a buzzword at the Donald's Forum. A lot of discussions will be centered around artificial intelligence in particular and generative AI. Uh, how much a challenge do you think for global CEOs to catch up? Because the development is really fast. Yeah, it's clear that the CEO community sees a big opportunity in AI. Mm. Um, that will go to how they drive their business. That will go to how they serve their consumer. That will go to the strategic deployment of capital, financial and human capital in the right places to take advantage of the opportunities that they have. And, and AI will be informative to do that. What the CEOs now are focused on is how do I find the right technologies or build the right technologies and embed them into my operations? Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need three things. You need the employees to be upskilled mm -hmm. in the use of technology. So upskilling the skill set of an organization is going to be extremely important. Second is going to be some rules of how to use AI. And here, again, you do have issues around concerned about cyber risks and other aspects like that and the degree of security yeah. that's embedded in it. And then third is um, it is the bright, shiny new object that everybody is interested in. As you said, in Davos, there's numerous meetings about this. It will this. be too crowded it, for investment? It will be crowded for investment, but it also means every employee of an organization will want to use it and have it. And so we're going to have to be very disciplined because it is expensive. And what people tend to forget about relevant to AI is, A, there is an expense to it, it's not free. And second, there is an energy usage associated to it, a significant amount of energy usage. Yeah. So if people want to be providing climate and emissions commitments, they also have to take increased use of AI into consideration. So the CEOs have to manage that very carefully in making some tough decisions of what to do and what not to do. Can you talk a little specifically about um, what potential do you see for AI for reshaping business operations? What are the most promising aspects that they can harness the power of AI? 
It's clear that the CEO community sees the ability to reinvent themselves and react quickly to the fast-pacing world that we're in right now. And I think you're gonna see this in sort of three areas. One is gonna be, how can I enhance or protect my revenue base? Because the AI, the generative AI will be used in a way to interact with consumers. We see that today if it's a, um, a pharmaceutical company that actually is providing different advertisements, there's gonna be much more tailored, targeted advertisement to the consumer in a much different way. Um, the creation of that advertisement itself will be done by the AI. So there's some interesting things that'll happen there. So revenue recognition and enhancement of that will be key. Second will be the efficiencies in the organizations. How can you be much more effective and efficient getting data in the right hands of the right people to make the right decisions? And the AI will be useful in that. In some cases, the AI may replace humans in doing that. And, and you, you see this come to life in terms of how will we manage for climate and reductions of emissions. A very simple example is the amount of AI that's gonna be in buildings of when the lights should be on or off. When should the energy usage go up or down for heating or air condition? Um, the machines will be much more equipped to do that faster than humans will be. And the last piece is gonna be strategically how can AI be used? And in this case, um, organizations will be getting IP, intellectual property from AI. They may not build it themselves or have it themselves, so there's probably gonna be some M&A activity to provide new offerings, new products, new services that may come from this as well. And that's the three areas that we think will be very important for CEOs to take into consideration relevant to their own transformation. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Great to see you. Coming up next, we caught up with CEO of Eurasian Resources Group, a key player in a global dialogue on sustainable development and renewable energy transition. He shared with us their efforts to ensure a resilient and stable supply chain amidst the global uncertainties and geopolitical conflicts. We also discussed how China's commitment to sustainable development is shaping the global energy landscape. Stay tuned. wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African. How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. So, Mr. Sobotka, thank you so much for joining us on CGTN. Thank you. So, how does ERG plan to contribute to the broader dialogue of sustainable development and renewable energy transition in Davos? Well, I think it's become a wonderful tradition to speak to you at, uh, at Davos. I've always enjoyed our conversations here. Thank and, you. Uh, for us, this forum is very important because it brings together companies, governments, policymakers, civil society to discuss about the most pressing issues. And for us, of course, the energy transition is one of the most important ones, uh, which directly affects our business very much because we believe it is probably the biggest purchase order in the history of the commodities, the mining industry, because by definition, technologically, the energy transition is a lot more material intensive than the 
traditional hydrocarbon-based economy. Mm. So um, for us, this is a great opportunity, but we have to make sure that this uh, supply chains and this, this incredible growth and demand for critical raw materials is, is built up in a sustainable fashion. Sustainable meaning here, applying standards that are racing to the top as opposed to racing to the bottom as we expand the supply chain. Mm. Um, and this is the right place to discuss these topics because you have everyone at the round the table who should be contributing to this discussion, mm. whether it's on, um, on ESG-related matters, whether it's on uh, uh, civil society community involvement. Um, this is one of the most important discussions to have. And of course, for us, mm. we are contributing through our operations, mm. producing some of those very critical raw materials, but also our future-looking investments we are making in new regions and new commodities around the world. Mm. Are there any specific achievements you hope to achieve here? Well, we've, uh, we are part of an initiative um, called the SMET, mm-hmm. which is a f- World Economic Forum-based um, initiative to build a, um, or to, to, to reduce the obstacles to closing the gap in critical raw materials, the supply-demand gap. So trying to build um, the, the, a sustainable supply chain for the minerals required for the energy transition. Mm-hmm. And we published a report in December. In this report, um, you will see that one of the biggest um, barriers to increasing investment in this space is policy. Mm-hmm. Policy frameworks, the long-term nature of those investments, and thus the required policy to be long-term as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the topics we're discussing here with, with industry uh, players, with host governments. Um, and of course, the World Economic Forum is, is a wonderful platform to convene these players to discuss about this. Mm-hmm. So given the global uncertainties and geopolitical conflicts, how challenging do you see uh, to uh, keep the supply chain resilient and stable? And how is ZRG navigating these complexities? It is a very significant challenge. What we've seen is, is when historically customers wanted a unit of metal to be as cheap as possible. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, it should, should still be cheap, but it should also be clear where does it come from? How has it been produced? What is the CO2 footprint? through which countries has it been moved, refined, processed. Um, and those are challenges that we hadn't, we didn't have five years ago. This is when you actually now have to show an end-to-end um, cl- transparency around the provenance of those materials because mm. other factors are becoming very important. Um, mm. So it's not just about price at the right time, at the right place, this metal should be there, but it's also many, many other factors. Mm-hmm. And we've now grown into with 160 members worldwide um, as a multi-stakeholder uh, organization. Uh, we've grown probably into the largest organization in the space because we will need these kind of passports for many materials, for metals as much as for other products. We have to understand where does this material come from in order to avoid a fragmentation of the supply chain, avoid an over-politization of the supply chain because we've got one objective and that's producing 10 times more metal that has ever been produced in the history of the world in the next mm-hmm. 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a tremendous challenge as we move into more risky jurisdictions, as we move into more technically challenging jurisdictions and also geologies. Um, so it's a great amount of work for this industry um, to, uh, to deliver. To what extent do you think the, the WEF can contribute to uh, this kind of uh, resilience building? Well, first of all, it's important that um, in, in a pre-competitive space, we work together to first agree on what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sometimes takes time mm-hmm. uh, to bring everyone together and, and, be, and be open to share what the challenges are. I mean, given an idea at the Global Battery Alliance is we've spent many months and many long, long hours negotiating what the greenhouse gas emission 
tracking framework should look like. We call it the rule books. Mm. That everyone in this industry agrees how to calculate the CO2 emissions of one unit of nickel, for example, that goes from the mine through the processing into, uh, into the automotive battery and for mm. other metals as well. Mm. Uh, and we have to establish those common understandings and uh, we have to align on what these rules should be. And we have something similar on biodiversity. We're now working on, uh, on social metrics. We're working on labor, uh, mm. labor metrics as well. And, and that's going to be very important. Um, and where the forum obviously is because it can actually invite mm. people from different areas that are important in the stakeholders mm -hmm. uh, to have an open discussion, which again is not political. Mm. And I think that's that's one of the one of the strengths of this this environment here. Mm. How much is China's commitment to sustainable development and energy transition shaping the global energy landscape? Well, first of all, China is not just the biggest contributor to world growth; still is, uh, despite all the noise that some people may want to make about the sustainability of China's growth. But growth in China is it's still all about China's growth. Mm -hmm. um, but it is by far the largest renewable energy market. It is by far the largest producer of renewable energy technologies, and it is all. So probably by far one of the most innovative countries when it comes to energy storage and energy transition technologies. Um, and of course, this is going to be very important um, as we innovate through better battery chemistries, we innovate through better energy savings um, technologies, better monitoring systems, distributed energy systems, power power systems that have to be built out. I mean, China is by far the most advanced country when it comes to this. Um, and the world can benefit. That's, uh, we, we see it today. Many people talk about the electric vehicles that are being exported from China as a threat, but it actually will help a lot to make the transition to electrified mm. transportation to be so much quicker and so much more competitive. Mm. I mean, this year we're probably looking at something like 21% electric vehicle penetration worldwide. Mm. <laughs> when we started uh, the, uh, the the battery global battery lines with the World Economic Forum in 2016, um, the entire 2016 of electric vehicles was one day of electric vehicles today. Mm. Tells you something about the speed of yes. the advancement of, of how a transportation sector is, is decar mm. decarbonizing. Mm. So of of course, China plays central role in this. Um, mm. So we, we work very closely with our Chinese partners on on, on ways to, to be faster and to be more efficient. Mm. Well, Chinese Premier made a speech at the Davos Forum, and uh, one of his messages that China should be viewed as an opportunity instead of a risk. What is your take on uh, the investment environment in China? Well, we're, we've been long-term partners uh, in China. I think we had our first business and first factories and operations China sometime in the, the late yeah in the mid 2000 um, and uh, we've since then worked very closely with Chinese engineering companies and of course our large customers most of our products go to China uh, we've built plants around the world as part of one belt one road with Chinese financing and Chinese technology and we're actually working working currently on a number of projects with Chinese partners not in China but outside of China uh, I'm not a big fan of, of actually linking business to specific countries because we're all global companies we all right. operate on a global scale so we need to partner globally mm. and i think uh, that's one of the strengths that we have as a company that's originally from kazakhstan is we can work with china in a third country so between kazakhstan and china we work for example in in, in the middle east or in africa or in south america mm. and i think that's a great strength of, of for us where we're being um we're, we're we're being able to actually go across these perceived ge uh, geopolitical blocks that I think have been merging and emerging in the last in the last few years. Mm. Coming up next, we talk to Sir Martin Sorrell, founder and executive chairman of S4 Capital, to discuss various topics related to the global digital economy and investment landscape. He also touched down the evolving global economic order and shifting balance of power. 
Join us as we delve into these crucial topics with one of the most influential figures in advertising and marketing industry. Find the Beijing Hour at precisely 6 p.m. Beijing time. We meet you on podcast and on air every weekday. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. Well, Sir Sorrell, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. A digital economy has been a, a big part of China's yeah. an economy. And how do you see the uh, risk-reward profile for international investors to engage in China's digital sector? I think you, know, you have to, if you're running a global business, you have to be in China. I, I think the result of what we're seeing it has very, been very noticeable since COVID, is that the outbound Chinese business is extremely strong. So Chinese companies mm. after COVID have started to invest in brand and advertising much more aggressively than foreign companies. The recovery that has come post COVID has been more domestically driven and driven by Chinese companies, mm. both within China and outside, outbound. And we've seen that with the Western platforms. A lot of the growth of Alphabet, mm. of Meta, of Amazon has been outbound, outbound Chinese. So, uh, you know, I think it will continue. I think foreign companies, if they have a weaker Chinese position, and I define uh, strength as being about 20% of your sales. If you look at Chinese, GDP, it's about 20% of worldwide GDP, a little bit under. And I, I think for Chinese weighting, you think about 15 to 20%. So Tesla, Apple, probably have got the right weighting. Do you want to go further, given the tensions? Probably not. Mm -hmm. If your Unilever, I think, has about 7% of its sales in China, maybe you want to be bigger. Mm -hmm. If you're Reckitt Benkiza, you're 9%. You probably want to be bigger. So where there, I mean, you can't ignore the Chinese market. So that's from a client point of view. From an investment point of view, the same mm -hmm. thing applies. You know, China is around 20% of worldwide GDP. My own view is when you look forward to 2050, China will be the world's largest economy, not on a per capita basis, but will be on an overall basis. Mm -hmm. Well. China has a big delegation presenting in Davos, yes. Premier Li, and a lot of uh, yeah. government officials. What are the key messages that you expect from them? And from the, well, I, I think they they want to lay out um, that you know China is open for business. I'm sure mm -hmm. that's they want to encourage for, for encourage foreign investment. Mm -hmm. They want to 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 transmit that the, the atmosphere and the climate is conducive to foreign investment. Um, but I think the frictions are so great in the world at the minute that we're, what we're seeing is a fragmentation. Mm. And we're seeing you know, what um, Neil Ferguson, who was just interviewed uh, by a Japanese uh, journalist, mm. would re refer to as bipolarization, if you mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. I, I see you know, the world becoming much more fragmented. So mm -hmm. I think North and South America will be a block. Mm -hmm. 
The Middle East will be a block. Africa is very volatile, so very difficult to predict. And then Asia, subject to what we just talked about, really important. Europe, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the UK, uh, being the major five economies in Europe, mm -hmm. it is challenged from a revenue growth point of view. So less, there's more the emphasis in Europe around cost and improving efficiency than sort of growth. So that is, you know, critically important in a in a world where constantly that fragmentation. Mm. And in Europe and beyond, efficiency and AI and reducing cost will become more and more important. So for China, I, I, I think really the delegation has to send out um, friendly messages, mm. messages indicating that the administration uh, and the country welcomes inward investment, wants to provide an environment, you know, for example, I was at the Black meeting with the party secretary and mayor of Shanghai recently. I was at the FII in Hong Kong just before Christmas. And both those are good events to try and stimulate foreign investment in China. Uh, and are in extremely important in building a better atmosphere. Mm. Well, you know, the fragmentation cost the world economy dearly because uh, there's a lack of efficiency. Uh, so if we have to choose from security and efficiency, how would you advise? Well, you want both. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you'd like to, it'd be nice to say that uh, you get a one or the other. Um, you're going to have both. Mm, right. Well, and I think the difference is the balance of power is swinging, you know, the rise of the so-called BRICS. You know, the E7, I think I'm right in saying the E7 is bigger than the G7, and you strip out US and China, the E6, the emerging six economies, the fast-growing six mm -hmm. economies, are still bigger than the G6. Mm. So the balance of power in the world is shifting. We're in a a new order and I think if you're running a global company or trying to mini global in our case operating in 32 countries with eight and a half thousand people you have to you know it's not a question of wherever you go as long as the demographics are okay you, you're okay that's gone mm. you have to select that's why I think North and South America the Middle East and Asia are critical and you have to pick out markets in those worlds, in those regions, where you think the growth is. Mm. And you know, beyond China in Asia, obviously India is doing well. Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Philippines. I mean, all these markets, what I would call New Asia, are becoming more and more relatively important. So that's not to say Japan and Australia and New Zealand Mm. are not important too, but the relative importance is shifting. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you. Great insights. Thank you. In wrapping up our special edition of BizTalk from Davos, it's clear that the need to promote trust building, foster collaboration and drive innovation has never been more pressing. As we navigate the uncertainties and challenges of the world today, the conversations from Davos 2024 have set a compelling agenda for action. And that's all for this edition of BizTalk. Thank you for being with us. I'm Guan Xing. Until next time, bye for now.